North-South Connection Podcast Network listeners. Welcome back to the Multiverse of Fabulousness. My name is Johnny C, and as always, I want to thank you right up top for stepping through that portal and coming into a universe that's unknown to you because I got to admit, and I have no problem doing this, you never know what you're going to get when you hop into the Multiverse of Fabulousness. But I, I, I think anyway that I have a real special treat designed for everybody today. Some might call it a shameless self-promotion, but I have chosen not to look at it that way. It is episode 13 as well, so I guess you could make the argument that this is an unlucky episode, but again, I'm going to try to take that preconceived notion and turn it into a positive. Now, if it's your first time coming into the Multiverse of Fabulousness, what we usually do is travel around the multiverse looking for pop culture variants. Uh, sometimes we rebook pay-per-views. Sometimes we reimagine our WWE superstars as other fictional characters. In our last episode, we created some Avengers teams from the different eras of the WWF slash WWE. And uh, to go back even further, like in our first episode, we rebooked WrestleMania six if WCW would have been putting on WrestleMania six instead of the WWF. That's the type of shit you can usually experience out here in the multiverse. However, I'd like to share something with you this week that is very near and dear to my heart. So, about eh, maybe like a month, month and a half ago, maybe even two months at this point, you know, I started realizing that I was having a bit of a problem. Now, it's not a bad problem to have, but I, I started to notice that the content that I was creating for North-South was getting a little backed up. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, back when WCW Must Die was on the docket here, for example, I had a situation where there were like three episodes in the can, and, you know, based on the release schedule, it would be, you know, three months until I technically needed to create new content. Now, is that a bad thing? Well, no. I would imagine if I was the editor or person in charge of something like that, I would love to have the episodes in the can knowing that it's taken care of and I don't have to worry about it or hunt you down on release date and be like, where the fuck is my podcast that I'm supposed to be releasing? I certainly don't want any egg on my face. Now, as a person who honestly, guys, just really loves creating podcasts and content, I'm not saying I'm any good at it, but... I really, really enjoy the hell out of it. And having so much in the can created a scenario where I was kind of left without any podcast to create. So I bit the bullet and I put down my whatever it is monthly fee and started my own podcast feed. And I called it the Aqua Cave. Well, now, why did I call it the Aqua Cave? Well, you know, it's definitely a play off of the Bat Cave. But I'm more of a water-related type hero, I suppose. Well, I am a huge Aquaman fan. But the Aqua Cave is sort of designed as a... Or the concept is as a place where you can hang out and talk about pop culture, professional wrestling, nerdy shit that you like, etc., etc. And the Bat Cave was already taken. But I guess you could apply Man Cave or Woman Cave, which is the, the place of the house that's typically reserved for the one person who, who has things that aren't like the other. Like, for example, in my quote-unquote man cave in my house, 
I've got all my comics and shit, you know, eh, whatever. And, and I, I don't like the term man cave. I don't feel it's inclusive enough because you don't have to be a man to have a man cave if you're using that definition. So I apologize for using it. It's just a commonly known phrase here in the English language, and that's why I leaned on it. And since, you know, I've always sort of been known as Johnny C., uh, you know, my it, that's not my real name. My last name starts with a C, but when I was a kid, uh, one of my friend's dads, who was kind of like everybody's dad, you know, you know, like when you're growing up and you have a group of friends, and there's sort of like the one friend who has like the the dad who's like funny and you know lame but cool and cool but lame. And I, I'm not throwing any shades out any dads out there. I love all of you, but <laughs> uh, you know, my friends, I love I love them all. But he would call me Johnny C, just for no reason. And then, as we, it, it kind of stuck, and it was solidified by the release of the film American Pie 2. Now, this probably means nothing to anyone out there, but if you've ever seen American Pie 2, when they're at Stifler's house for Stifler's party, Stifler randomly walks by an extra, and he goes, Johnny C, nice to see ya! And, of course, I was in the theater with all my friends, and we popped... Like it was the finish to WrestleMania 6 for that stupid little reference. And so, forever etched in stone, I was Johnny C. Of course, I've chosen to spell it like C, like a body of water, and that's why it's the Aqua Cave. Enough about all that, though. <laughs> As if anyone really cares. But that's why it's called the Aqua Cave, in case you ever wondered. Now, over on the Aqua Cave, I have experimented with different shows over the course of its existence. And even though it's only been around for like two or three months, I've experimented quite a bit. But what I've done is I finally found the rotation. I finally found different shows that not only do I enjoy producing, but can usually produce, uh, you know, shorter episodes because I don't... (laughs) There's a reason why my least downloaded episode is the episode of WCW Must Die that's like two and a half hours long. I get it. Uh, I, I totally understand. So I, I came up with three different concepts that allows me to, to talk about something different each time. Uh, well, they have themes. I'll get to there. But, you know, as a, you know, uh, if you've ever out, if you created a podcast out there, if you know that every time you sit down, you have to talk about one person who's in the Royal Rumble, just to play off of now entering the Rumble from JT and Aaron, you know, you don't want to talk about the Royal Rumble every time you record a podcast. So I found three different topics that I, I rotate around on the feed. And what I'm going to do here in this episode of the Multiverse of Fabulousness is I'm not just going to throw in and play snippets from those shows. I'm actually going to on the fly, well, not on the fly because I have all the content ready to go. I'm going to actually produce three tiny little episodes right here for all of you to give you an aqua sampler. You may punch me in the face for saying aqua sampler the next time we get together as well. I give you full permission. But the shows are called, well, the first show is called Star Man. The next show is called Bright Man. And then we also have Kingfish. And I promise... Each one of those names will make sense to you by the time you're finished with this. And I want to make one thing very clear to all of you. None of this, if you if you enjoy one second of anything I've ever said, number one, thanks. But number two, none of it happens without the North-South Connection Podcast Network. 
I am not here to promote any of these shows on the Aqua Cave as an alternative to or superior to anything that's on North-South, okay? If it wasn't for JT and Aaron and Chad, uh, I I mean, I wouldn't have this outlet for creativity, and I wouldn't have as much fun as I do. So please, if you are hearing this and you have not subscribed to North-South Connection Podcast Network, what the hell are you doing? Just do it. Just do it because every show is fun and scratches that itch for your era of fandom or your pop culture desire. It's there. You can find it, I promise. If you don't think you can find it, reach out to me on Twitter at the Johnny C and I'll help you find it. Okay? Although I don't think that's happening because you're already here. But uh, so I want to make it very clear up front. I'm not doing this to undercut or anything. I just I have so much fun with these topics, and I think you might too. And since we travel to different universes here, I guess you could call this Earth Aqua. (laughs) See? Uh, Brand synergy, folks. That's what we call it. So, the first show that we're going to produce a little tiny episode of here in the Multiverse of Fabulousness is going to be Starman. What is Starman? Well, as Hawk would say, a while back I was Googling shit. All right, and I googled worst wrestling matches of all time because I thought, you know, I do have so much fun with WWE Must Die, which is, you know, there are some episodes on the Aqua K feed of that show, but I've kind of paused it. It's just, God, it's just a an, a massive undertaking, folks. And in order to cover everything I want to, or to get in like every shtick that I think is quote unquote funny, which I realize everyone doesn't, those episodes are just so fucking long, and I don't think anybody wants to listen to that. You know, so it's on hold. If it was your favorite show, I'm sorry, but no one's ever told me that, so I don't think I'm breaking any hearts here. But, so I googled the list of worst wrestling matches of all time, and, you know, I saw a bunch of articles on like, hey, the top five worst wrestling matches of all time, and I'm like, well, that's just somebody's opinion, it's just a person, and I'm not saying people's opinions don't matter, but what I stumbled across was a list of Dave Meltzer's worst reviewed wrestling matches of all time. And it's a pretty big list. So I'm going through it, and I'm seeing all these fun matches. I'm like, oh, that would be fun to talk about. That would be fun to talk about. But what's my hook? If everybody just thinks it's the worst wrestling matches of all time, you know, is are people going to enjoy just hearing about that? So as I was going through the list, I was like, oh, this match. I was thinking in my head, this match isn't that bad. Oh, that match. How can that match be negative three stars, and this match is only negative one? Because I think that match is a lot fucking worse. But then my thought was, well, it's just my opinion. And I tried to find a a way that we could maybe be a little less personally biased about it. And so what I did was I created Starman, which is a show where we take the worst wrestling matches of all time to court. A court of podcast entertainment law, if you will. And I do maybe like two or three episodes a match. And what I do is I take a look at it and I present evidence about that match after I've watched it. And the evidence is either from the prosecution or for the defense. Is the evidence that I'm pulling from the match that I've watched present it should be negative one star? Or is it against it being negative one star? And at the end of all the evidence, I render a verdict. Because this way, it seems a little bit more left-right, zero-one, you know, straight-narrow, and if you will. You know what? I watched this match, and I agree. It's guilty of being negative two stars. Or, 
I disagree. It's not guilty of being negative two stars. It might be a dud, but it's certainly not negative two, just to give you an example. So we started with negative uh, one and a half over on the Aqua K feed, and we've gotten all the way through that, and we're on negative two right now. Now, the negative two uh, episodes are going to go on for quite some time because negative two seems to be Dave's favorite ranking to give negative matches because there are a lot of them. And every once in a while, we'll have a very special match that encompasses the entire episode. For example, we did the Chamber of Horrors match. There was so much to talk about, it ended up being its own episode. And just recently, we did Jenny's favorite match, the King of the Road match. And it was like 80 minutes of the King of the Road where I tried to present an honest assessment, not only of the work, but the artistic merit of the cinematic style of it. And, you know, there are jokes, but I try to keep it pretty, pretty serious, okay? And what I'm going to do here for you is I'm going to give you a sampling of Starman Negative 2. Because I pulled a Negative 2 star match off of the list that we have not covered yet over in the Aqua Cave. And we're not going to cover it on the Aqua Cave. When we reach that point in the list, I'll make sure to direct everyone to this episode. So this is brand new content. I promise I would not try to just reuse and recycle stuff. So, let's strap in. For the case of Yokozuna versus King Mabel, which Dave found guilty of negative two stars. Let's see if we do. Now, before each match on Starman, I try to give a little bit of context because, as Eric Bischoff says, context is king, and it allows us to make a better informed decision at the end of the match. So, this match takes place smack dab in the middle of what is often considered the lowest point in WWF pay-per-view history. And I mean that not in a hyperbolic way, but I mean that literally. Because this match comes from In Your House Great White North, or In Your House 4. And that's famous for being the show that broke the Vince's back. Or being the straw that broke the Vince's back is probably what I meant to say. Because at the end of this pay-per-view, he famously slams his headset off after the abysmal main event. And he makes the decision to start siphoning all of the diesel from the WWF production trucks. Or to be serious about it, he realizes that this fucking diesel experiment isn't working in its current form. And so they pivot to Brett the next month, etc, etc. So, we're literally in the middle of the worst show, maybe of all time. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not trying to say that. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But, and you look at who's who's wrestling this match. It might seem a bit strange off the top, and, and I would agree with that. We've got a rare heel versus heel matchup here on pay-per-view. Now, Mabel, at this point in his career, is the reigning, defending, question mark, king of the ring. And Yokozuna is a charter member of Camp Cornette. Before the match gets started, uh, before the wrestlers even come out, Vince calls it a most unusual matchup made by Gorilla Monsoon. Well, why did he make it? So we cut to a video. Two weeks ago on Raw, it was a six-man tag team matchup. I don't know who all the participants were, but at the end of the match, it seemed to experience quite a breakdown. And the Kingster and the Yokester teamed up to crush the face of the Purple Taker. That being the version of the Undertaker with the purple accoutrement. And 
they show a lot of face-related impact in this video. A lot of it. Uh, lots of leg drops crushing The Undertaker's face. Lots of big splashes crushing The Undertaker's face. And King Mabel and Yokozuna are clearly working together as one. Jerry the King Lawler lets us know that this video should please most of the people here in Canada because they're used to this sort of thing. Because it's called a face-off. Which, okay, that's like a 6 or 7 on the dad joke scale, so good for you, Jerry. However, it still doesn't explain why these two would be facing off in a match. It shows that they work together for a goal, but why would they now be at odds? No time to ponder this now because King Mabel is getting carried down to the ring by his harem of jobbers. Or, as Vince McMahon calls them, beefy individuals. Now, as Mabel is being carried down to the ring, he's on his throne, and he, he is rocking his crown kind of tilted to the side and shades, and he, he looks like fucking Biggie, right? I mean, that's what he's going for, right? And this reminds me that when I was a kid, I will freely admit, I was kind of a King Mabel fan. And I even wrote King Mabel his own theme song, in the vein of Big Papa by the Notorious B.I.G. I love it when you call me King of Maple. Throw your hands up there, yeah. If you's a royal, eh, yeah. I love it when you call me King of Maple. I swear, that's a real thing. I did not just make that up. I remembered sitting in my computer and writing that as a little nerdy kid. And I guess I'm just a big nerdy adult now, so what are you going to do? But King Mabel is, like, dancing and doing hand movements as he's being carried down to the ring. And he looks just like the leader of the future people from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Like when they go to the future on accident and there's dude in the middle is like, it's you. And Bill and Ted are like, yeah, it's us. Who are we? Like Mabel is channeling that dude's energy. And when you consider the fact that that dude is floating and King Mabel's sort of floating, I like the synergy there. Now, as Mabel's being carried to the ring, Jim Cornette, Mr. Fuji, and Yokozuna break in for a split-screen interview. Luckily, this interview happens, and Jim Cornette gives us some context as to why this match is happening. He says, Everybody wanted to see the matchup for a long time between Yokozuna and King Mabel, but King, or but King, but Gorilla Baboon signed it to cause trouble amongst this union. It's kind of a shitty Jim Cornette impression, but basically, he says that Gorilla Monsoon is so scared by the idea of people as powerful as Yokozuna and King Mabel teaming up to become one unit, that he's booked them in a match together to break them apart before the union can be solidified. And whether or not you agree that's a dumb storyline or a good storyline, it is at least a narrative that's being presented as to why these athletes who are heels, who have no problems with one another, are being made to go one-on-one. -on -one. And so hopefully, that story or context carries into the match itself. If it doesn't, that will be part of why a guilty verdict might be rendered, just to give you an example of what we do on Starman. And it makes sense, like I said, and it is our story going forward for this match. It's all we've got, so it kind of has to be. All right. Um, Yoko makes his entrance, and the crowd lightly pops. So he kind of appears to be the anointed babyface in this match. To me, that makes sense. Because while these guys have both pretty much been around the WWF for almost the same amount of time, I mean, Yoko has a little bit of an edge there. Yokozuna is a multiple-time WWF champion, and he has victories over top-tier superstars. And he's often been like an evil, quote-unquote, foreign heel, which I'm doing the fear and quotes thing here. But this is Canada, 
So none of that USA nonsense really matters here. So it makes complete sense to me why Yoko is the kind of babyface. Uh, Mabel spends Yokozuna's entrance fucking around with his crown and sort of tilting his glasses up and down and mugging for the camera. Where, like, yo, Mabel, dude, this personality is absolutely a fucking win for me. Where you been all this time, dude? Like, this is cracking me up. Jim Ross does his typical apologizing for the match before it starts by saying there won't be any wrist locks or wrist, you know, whatever. Who cares, Jim Ross? Don't be a dick. Commentary puts over that these two have single-handedly saved the food service industry in Winnipeg when they arrive for their matchup this weekend as well. Now, the bell rings, so order in the court! It is time to start presenting evidence and evidence only. As I'd mentioned, these pieces of evidence is what will determine the outcome. I might mention a funny thing on commentary, for example, but that will not influence the decision. Only what the workers do in their given time will affect the official star man verdict. So let's get in to the evidence portion of this star man sampler here in the Aqua Cave that's here in the North-South Connection Podcast Network. It's like Inception. There's different levels and layers, kind of like an onion, and I love it. So if you've not heard my Starman presentation before, I try to let my vocal inflection uh, reveal whether or not it's evidence in favor in the, of the match or against the match. You know, that way it keeps it from uh, having to use so many non-sequiturs. So here we go. It takes about 45 seconds after the bell rings for the two athletes to get face-to-face. You know, but once they do, uh, Mabel slaps Yoko, and Yoko sort of looks to the crowd like, Really? Did you just slap me? And he's kind of looking for a babyface response, and he slaps Mabel back. Now, I consider slapping more of a heel thing, but Yoko played it up to the crowd like a babyface, and that seems to match up with what the crowd wants based on the entrances. So, okay. So far, so good. Now, Yoko sends Mabel outside with a clothesline and sort of taunts, like, just bring it. Now, if this was The Rock and Triple H in 2000, This would be totally fine. It doesn't look as smooth. But, uh, you know, we'll have to apply the same rules here, I suppose. Just, Your Honor, may I have a a brief aside, please? Guys, I think the hard camera is off-center for this show. Like, I've only watched this match, but I can confirm and guarantee that the hard camera is off-center for this. Which just makes these... When you combine that with, like, the commentary, which I'm not going to get into, like, you can hear Vince McMahon sort of falling apart, like, <laughs> ah! like throwing in some extra laughs, meaning that he's trying really hard to get those laughs in there because he's watching it all fall apart. Anywho, like I said, Mabel knocked outside. He stalls for 30 seconds, I counted, and then he re-enters the ring. Upon re-entry, Yokozuna has to confirm strategy with Master Fuji for... 29 seconds. I counted. The athletes make contact. Mabel gets whipped into the ropes and ducks a strike. Mabel, picking up more momentum, hits the ropes again. And holy shit! A flying clothesline from Mabel. And the crowd actually oohs and ahs. And this gets a two count. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, that's how it always starts. Uh, ooh, ah. Uh, then there's running and uh, screaming. Uh, Your Honor, may I just have another aside, please? The the camera 
is at a Dutch angle as well now. <laughs> so the fucking presentation, the video presentation, like the the filmmaking is falling apart uh, here in the Great White North. Now one elbow strike from Mabel and Yokozuna falls out of the ring and we're just playing the opposites here. Uh, in celebration, though, of knocking Yokozuna out of the ring, Mabel hits the O'Doyle rules pose with his arms, and I laughed. Yokozuna is outside for 29 seconds. Then the match resumes. Yoko in the corner now, and oh my god, is that Mabel? No, it's Sting! Because Mabel hits a Kinger Splash! That's right, I call it a Kinger Splash. Want to fight about it? He jumps up at everything. And it looks cool. Mabel then kicks Yokozuna in the gut, turns his back, and starts dancing. Or, as Vince McMahon calls it, And look at this, yes, get down, get funky. Uh, That's what he says. Like, I just wrote down what he said. I wasn't doing a a shtick there. Yokozuna now hits a clothesline, but he misses the Hulkamania killing leg drop. Mabel up quickly now. There's speed and intensity here, but he misses an elbow. Yokozuna is in control. The crowd is silent. So there goes my he's the babyface theory. Mabel in control now with a headbutt. And Mabel bounces off the ropes. Oh, your honor. I have to deliver this next piece of evidence in three steps. So if I may, please. All right. So like I said, Mabel goes off the ropes and runs toward Yokozuna. Yokozuna has his back to Mabel. All right. The scene is set. Continue with your evidence. Step one, Mabel jumps and goes to grab Yokozuna by the hair for a John Cena-esque one-handed bulldog. Step two, as Mabel starts falling forward, his arm moves into a more traditional bulldog formation, sort of forming a circle with fist to hip while jumping in air, if you will. Uh, Step three, your honor. Mabel falls on his ass, completing the bulldog sequence. Now, the unfortunate part about this bulldog is that during any of the three steps mentioned, Mabel actually failed to make contact with Yokozuna's head itself. And so therefore, Yokozuna is still standing, but selling being dazed and confused, I guess, from some impact that he experienced when their bodies collided. Uh, Yokozuna then falls outside the ring. Mabel follows to continue the action, but the referee reaches a dead count to massive boos? Like, where where were you guys the rest of this thing? You're all pissed off and in a double count out? Okay, so the bell has rung. The match is over. I have, and usually, I want to point something out. Usually time is not as important in this, but I had to do a lot of counting. Um... So, I'm, I'm, I've got some numbers for you. This match was 5 minutes and 12 seconds. That's what I've got it at. Uh, according to my calculations, 2 minutes and 11 seconds of that 5 minutes and 12 seconds is standing or stalling or confirming with managers. I did a little math. If I'm correct, that is 41% of this match. And, <laughs> while the Bulldog was quite humorous, <laughs> it was... A botch to end all botches, in my opinion, uh, compared to some of the ones we've seen here on Starman. With all that compounded, Your Honor, I believe I have reached a verdict. 
And I do indeed find this match guilty of the negative two-star ranking applied by Dave Meltzer. However, a final thought. When you combine the facts that we presented here in the evidence and combine that with the off-center camera, the Dutch angle, and the absolutely insane commentary where they bury the match the entire time, and, like I said, Vince has to sort of fight to get in those ha-ha-ha fake laughs, you can sort of feel his ego deflating and his company falling apart before his very eyes. And so I'm going to recommend this entire presentation as a whole, uh, but I cannot in good conscience uh, say that the match is not guilty. So we are going to go with guilty there, and that will end uh, the case of King Mabel versus Yokozuna. However, still not the worst match that we have covered here on Starman. That remains the, well, as much as I hate to do this, guys, if you'd like to know what the worst match is we've reviewed so far on Starman, check out the archives. And I'll give you a hint. When you consider the fact that we've covered the Chamber of Horrors and the King of the Road and large gimmick matches like that, I can tell you it is not either of those. But those two special episodes are fun listens. And folks... That's going to wrap it up here on Starman in the Aqua Cave on the North-South Connection Podcast Network, question mark. Oh, I already did that joke. Damn it. All right, that's okay. Now, if you liked what you heard with Starman, you can find it wherever video cassettes are sold. Or just type the Aqua Cave into your favorite podcatcher device and then fucking get them there if you want. So... I think in my listing earlier, I had said we were going to talk about Starman, Brightman, and Kingfish, and don't worry, we are. They're all part of Earth Aqua. However, I want to talk about Kingfish next. So if you were taking notes, and you're the type of meticulous note-taker like I am, and you you, you went ahead and pre-bracketed things out, and you had Brightman next, I'm sorry, I fucked up your sequencing, and for that, I apologize. Kingfish is what we call... A Shane McMahon audio journey. It is a reliving of Sunday Night Heat, the fantastic show that the WWF debuted in 1998 as sort of their official B-show because SmackDown doesn't come around until sort of the end of 99. And we call it a Shane McMahon audio journey because, folks... Shane McMahon is on commentary here in the early stages, and the show will run until Shane McMahon leaves the commentary desk permanently to be determined when that happens. And it's not really a show. I mean, we talk about everything that happens on the show, right? So, like, if the oddities fight uh, the Disciples of Apocalypse, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about the silly things that happen in the match. Uh, we'll talk about the ridiculous, but we mainly focus on the ridiculous things that Shane McMahon says on commentary. You know, I'm not like giving out star ratings or anything like that. It ain't that type of show, fans. But we've we've got five episodes in the can, and we've already discovered so much. Now, I went back and forth about how do we effectively talk about this audio journey that we've been on without ruining a future episode. Like, for example. I didn't want to just pull a segment out of the archives and play it, because that's not fun. And I didn't want to watch like the first segment of the next episode, because that's just going to be tomfoolery and what have you. 
So I sort of came up with some of our greatest hits, and I just want to bring them to the forefront and, and, and let you know some of the things that Shane McMahon has already told us about himself on this audio journey. Now, this isn't so much about Shane, but in one of our episodes, I tell a fantastic and interesting story. <laughs> How about that? A person telling you about a story that they told confirms before you hear it that it's a fantastic story. The fucking balls on that person. But I think it was an entertaining and interesting... I did it again! Okay, it is a story about something that actually happened to me. A person that I worked with is related... Or that I used to work with a long time ago is related to the McMahon family. And it's not like my brother's nephew's cousin's girlfriend. It is a very close relationship. And uh, we had some chats about Shane's wedding. And uh, I shared some of that information with the uh, podcast. Kept it, kept that person's anonymity intact, though, and I will continue to do so. In these early episodes of Kingfish, oh, why is it called Kingfish? Gosh, th- because uh, in the first episode, Jr. and the King are on commentary, and right away Vince introduces Shane McMahon, and he comes down with his friends, which is where I was going to go to. We'll talk about that. But when he he says, "Hey, Jr., how's it going?" What's up, Kingfish? When he's talking, he calls Jerry Lawler Kingfish. It's fucking ridiculous, but it's been a part of my lexicon since I was a Ute. So I continue to say it, and I'm bringing it to the forefront. Now, Shade is often accompanied by, well, we'll call them local models, his friends. And sometimes they wear fucking commentary headsets and speak. Other times, we've uncovered audio conspiracies where it's clear, because it's not yet a live show, that Shane McMahon's friends were saying something on headset because the audio feed just goes dead and they don't allow these women's voices to be heard. Hashtag save Shane's friends. Uh, We also learn a lot more about Shane's antics in regards to miscalling moves. (laughs) He has a bad habit of calling DDTs suplexes and suplexes DDTs. It's hilarious. Also, Shane is really obsessed with DX, specifically Triple H. Oh, Triple H. Just, just, just listen to the archives, okay? And it's especially hilarious because he's so far up Triple H's ass, and now, of course, Triple H and Stephanie are in charge of the whole fucking company, and uh, Shane as well, in regards to the WWE anyway, out on his ass. Assed. That's what happens when you, when you say these things live, folks. Shane also appears to be on a quest of some sort. Sometimes he's going one place. Other times he's going another. Now, what the fuck do I mean by that? Well, Shane likes to go down. Sometimes it's downstairs or downtown. Example, oh, Kurgan the interrogator, go downtown. You know, maybe when he body slams somebody or... X-Pac, go downtown, baby, when he does the Bronco Buster. He loves to bust out a different down area, and we're just kind of keeping track of that. He's also got some great nicknames for folks who appear on the show frequently. <laughs> the Enigma Edge, JR. <laughs> JR, it's the Enigma Edge. He's weird. <laughs> He's just... Like, he's, he's trying to get the character beats across, but he just sounds so stupid when he talks about it. You know, instead of being like, he's mysterious. He hits without, well, he does say, he hits without warning. Uh, Jacqueline, the baby with back. 
Every time he talks about Jacqueline, he calls her the baby with back. He calls draws the draws. And we also saw some early draws skits as well. Uh, where they were doing like a real world character with draws. Uh, it's interesting. I'd forgotten all about it. So that's fun. Folks, we've also had a lot of storyline developments with the Legion of Doom 2000. Specifically in regards to Hawk's demons. <laughs> now look. I will, I will make this very clear as I do on Kingfish. If <laughs> There's nothing funny about alcoholism. Like, it's not. It's not funny. It's not funny at all. However, I, if Hawk's not drunk while he's doing this shit, he's a fantastic drunk actor. Let me put it that way. Including an episode where he appears on camera wearing his helmet the entire time. It's fucking glorious. Also, a lot of Kai and Tai sightings. I've seen like two Takamishinoku matches. Uh, the light heavyweight championship has yet to be defended, but we get lots of Mr. and Mrs. Yamaguchi-san. We get lots of choppy, choppy, your pee-pee. And you know what? I have a good time with it. I love reliving that shit. Also, uh, continuing and dangling plots involving Star Pacific Blue, Mario Lopez. Yeah, that's right. All in the archives for you. Scorpio main appearance. And it, it we, we, we sort of went on a tangent. Uh, we, we talked a lot about Hank Scorpio from The Simpsons. If that sounds like something you'd like to engage in, give it a listen. Now, our latest episode, available on the Aqua Cave feed, uh, finally took us to our very first live episode of Sunday Night Heat, which may have been a glorified pre-show, but it takes place L-I-V-E from the house that Grandpa McMahon built, Madison Square Garden. And it came with an extra special treat because not only was it a Shane McMahon audio journey, but it was a Heartbreak Kid audio journey as well. And he was glorious. Shane O'Mac, you better shut your trap or I'm going to kick your teeth right down your throat. Well, he didn't actually say that, but there are lots of Shawn Michaels impressions. And my absolute favorite part of every episode, folks, is I perform verbatim uh, a reimagining. Well, it's not a reimagining because I do say verbatim what they say. But every time a new Kingfish episode drops, I will let you know to a T what you can expect after Sunday Night Heat during uh, USA Network's Sunday Night Heat lineup, which as of this moment includes Pacific Blue. Silk Stockings, and La Femme Nakita, as Jim Ross is apropos to say. Not only that, I make sure to include all the botches in those as well. Like when Shane McMahon is trying to just read the copy that's in front of him, but somehow continues to call the match. It's glorious. It's a lot of fun. And, and, um... In our one of our episodes, they promote Triple H on Pacific Blue. And because of that, I ended up going back and watching it for free on Amazon Prime Video on one of the channels they have on there. So if you, uh, yourself and you, have Amazon Prime Video, I think it might have been Freevee, that, that free TV thing that's out there. I don't know. But Pacific Blue Season 4, I don't remember what episode, but Triple H is in it. 
And because of Kingfish, I watched the Triple H Pack Blue episode. It's fucking awful and glorious. Not to mention that it seems like whenever Triple H is on screen, the DX theme song is playing in the background, even if it's inappropriate for the setting. Like if Triple H was on Pack Blue and there was like one of the one of the one of the uh, co- the bike cops, the cool bike cops of Pacific Blue got shot down in the line of duty. And they went to the funeral, and Triple H's character had to appear. They'd be like, and so our dearly beloved bike cop is being laid to rest. But the background would be like, Degeneration X! Does anyone have any words to say about Becky, the bike cop? Degeneration X! Okay, I think I've gotten the point across, but yeah. So. It's 1998 in a nutshell as well. I like to point out some of the inappropriate signs that I see. Not because I want to glorify it, but just to really put in check. Like, good lord, if you thought things were bad now, they were also bad in 1998. So don't look back on the entire thing with rose-colored glasses. Plus, not to mention, it's an Attitude Era show, so it's always fun to go back and see what kind of nonsense they would get up to and I think you know without going too far into spoiling all the shtick that we come up with on the show that is Kingfish so much fun to produce they're quick listens too um I think the SummerSlam episode is like 40 minutes all right so it's definitely an easy in and easy out just like Shane McMahon's weekends Oh, yeah, Johnny C. We're going downstairs into my friend Michelle. JR, have you met Michelle? She's 21 years old. I think that actually happened on a live episode or an episode. But dig into the archives, check all that out, and you also get to see uh, or hear uh, Shawn Michaels uh, doing his best Ned Flanders on commentary as well. It happened, okay? I can't make this shit up. It happened. But that's going to bring us to our finale here and I did save it for last not because I think it's the best but because I'm going to give a little bit more I'm going to actually sort of do an episode of the next show because and I figured it would take the longest amount of time and that's why I wanted to save it for last because I just feel like it makes sense to go out giving you a full amount of content because Even though I'm doing all this stuff, guys, I want to make it very clear that the multiverse of fabulousness is a priority for me. Uh, If you've enjoyed it, thank you. We'll continue to bring it to you as long as it's something that you want. It just so happens that, you know, when I fell through the portal this time, it led us to Earth Aqua, and that's why we're here. All right? So, let's shed a little light. Yes, I said let's shed a little light on my show, Bright Man. Uh, And yes, it's another bad pun. And again, permission to punch. Eh, Let's go with punch me in the dick this time, because I think the last time I gave permission to punch in the face. Uh, You know, if I ever go to one of these uh, north-south place-to-be pay-per-view gatherings in some major American metropolis, I am going to come back quite injured indeed. So, of course, I had to have at least one show that allowed me to freestyle, or basically allowed me to not be confined to any sort of... I don't want to say concept or anything like that because we do follow concepts. You know, we we pick a topic and we go with it. But that's why we call it Bright Man because whatever bright idea I have to talk about that episode is what we talk about. We did our first episode 
on the uh, 1990 Intercontinental Championship Tournament that occurred in the wake of WrestleMania 6. And, you know, my bright idea was I heard somebody on a podcast talking about the old WWE 24-7 on-demand service, and it reminded me that when I subscribed to that in, like, 2012 or 2013, nah, 2011 or 2012 it had to have been, because uh, I remember it, it's irrelevant. But whatever month it was, it, it honestly, it was probably April because what they were promoting that month was the 1990 Intercontinental Championship Tournament. And it reminded me uh, that I watched it and, it, and you know, and so I did a show on it. That's, that, that was the bright idea that I had. The next episode, because there's only been two released, covered the Underfaker, the reign of the Underfaker. Because some news broke that they were going to republish the uh, death of Superman from 1992 on its 30th anniversary. And I I don't know, something happened and I was like, you know, that's a lot like what they tried to do with The Undertaker. And then, podcast, alright? So, and you know what? Hey, revealed here for the very first time, I believe the day after this episode drops on the North-South Connection Podcast Network... The third episode of Bright Man will penetrate your earwaves. And it's uh, we're calling it the Three Jokers, which is a Batman reference. But we are covering the holy trilogy of King of the Ring qualifying matches between Doink the Clown and Mr. Perfect. And i got to tell you something, guys. I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I really enjoyed those matches. Uh, it was a lot of fun to talk about. Honestly, it was... One of my favorite things I've done in terms of research for a show or just watching a show to talk about it because, man, I love me some doink and I hope that comes through and I hope you enjoy it when it does eventually penetrate the earwaves, as I mentioned. Now, I kind of have another bright idea and I thought about doing what I'm about to do today for for all of you. And I was like, man, if I did that, it would be a ridiculously long show. I would have to do like 38 different shows. And I didn't want to commit to something that long because what if I get bored with it and I want to switch up? Or what if the audience doesn't respond to it? You know, and what if I just suck at it and I've wasted 38 episodes of my life? So what I've done, though, is I, I when I do these episodes of Starman that are on, on one match, I take some time to set the scene, and I've been like, oh, hey, the King of the Road match. What was the number one song in America that day? What was the number one movie in America that weekend? Which is not something wholly unique and original. Um, but I hadn't run into any sort of pairings where I was like, oh, man, that what a crazy coincidence that this movie came out the day of this pay-per-view. Uh, like, the King of the Road match, the number one movie was Outbreak, which, well... <laughs> And then when I did the uh, Chamber of Horrors match, the number one movie was House Party 2, which I didn't see any correlation between. But then I started to think to myself, what if what if we took a look at WrestleMania? All the WrestleManias. And we took a look at what movie was the number one movie at the box office in America that particular weekend. Is there any sort of synergy? You know, what draws audiences to see a movie in the year that WrestleMania came out. And what I mean by that is, and this is just a made-up pairing, you know, if if uh, WrestleMania 14 came out, and we know that was Attitude, well, what, what would the number one weekend movie be in a, in a year like that where the WWF product is geared towards teenagers and Attitude? 
Well, I'm assuming maybe a PG-13 movie with a little more violence or maybe even an R-rated film would be the number one film in America that weekend. And maybe I could be wrong. It could be a fucking Disney movie. And that's fine. And I was just wondering, man, what if there's synergy here? What if that could be really fun to talk about? Like how culture relates to one another? Because I'm a huge pop culture fan. And then I was like, well, what if the episodes don't really... Like I said, what if it's like a fucking The Hunchback of Notre Dame, awesome Disney movie, and WrestleMania 14? Well, they're both... Okay, so you see where I'm going here. And... What I've decided to do here on this special North-South Connection episode of Bright Man is I had my assistant prepare a list. I provided them the dates, and they have provided to me the list of the number one films in America at the box office, those dates. And those dates are the dates of every WrestleMania in history. Now, in order to keep this short... Hopefully. Not sure, but just, you know, I don't, I'm not going to take six hours to do this. I have not looked at the list. So what we are going to do is a stream of consciousness. What can we find in common, if anything, between what the American culture was buying into and what the wrestling culture was buying into? Maybe there's some synergy. Maybe there isn't. So I have not looked. Okay, I've seen the first one on the list when the message came through on my phone. So it's cheating a little bit. I apologize. Um, But the other ones are breaking news to me. All right? So without further ado, this bright idea begins. Oh, my God. All right. Okay. Okay. The first... Okay. Okay. okay, So the first two go together. So I'm going to kind of cheat, but let's talk about it. And, And this, you know... This is, like I said, stream of consciousness. I'm sorry if it's scattered. I'm going to try not to be. So this is very interesting. WrestleMania 1 weekend in 85, the number one movie in America is fucking Police Academy 2. The weekend of WrestleMania 2, the number one movie is Police Academy 3. Now this tells me a couple of things. Wow. Okay, so when I think of Police Academy, I'm not a huge Police Academy mark, okay? Uh, the one I know the best is... Uh, Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol, not only because it's cop, but I remember that Citizens on Patrol song, because that I feel like HBO and that permeated my brain when I was a kid. But when I think of Police Academy as a film series, number one, it's deeply rooted in 80s culture. Uh, I don't remember how many are R-rated. I think the first two are, and they're like those hard R comedies from the 80s, like Caddyshack, which is amazing. But I think of Police Academy as like a dirtier, like cigarette smoking version of that, which is fine. Hey, I, I smoked cigarettes when I was younger. I wouldn't recommend it, but I'm not throwing shade. Um, and and I really WrestleMania one. I, I sort of think of that too. Like I wouldn't be surprised if you know the dude in the front row was chain smoking the whole uh, episode, the whole show, for example. But also how permeated in '80s fucking culture is WrestleMania one. So I love the synergy there. Now the fact that Police Academy three was released one year later tells me that that movie was a rush job and may not have been as good as the originals. And honestly, folks, isn't that WrestleMania 2 in a nutshell? Now, I I guess you couldn't say it's a rush job because it's one year later, so it makes sense. But the fact that it's, especially when it comes to the film, like, come on, Police Academy 2, the fucking ink's not even dry, and you're already making the third one? Now, hey, it's Police Academy. It's not like it's Star Wars, but that's so interesting to me. Um, also, 
Uh, the culture seemed to want to see the same thing over and over again, kind of like today's culture, because here we are with two sequels, years apart, one year apart of one another, being number one at the box office. I love it. And WrestleMania 2, also so rooted in that 80s feel. Um, I mean, the next year, well, hey, let's... Oh, all right, this one's not... Okay, so the number one movie in America for WrestleMania 3 is Blind Date. I think that is a Bruce Willis movie. Fuck, I have never seen it before in my life. Um, I, I think it's like one of those like, uh, oh man, we're going on a date and all these crazy things happen in one night. And I can't really think of any correlation between WrestleMania 3 and Blind Date. Because WrestleMania 3 is like the pinnacle of like pop culture presentation for the WWF. It's so different from WrestleMania's 1 and 2 in the way that it looks, number one. The way that it feels and sort of what it means. I mean, WrestleMania 1 is huge, but between 2 and 3, 2 is like a throwaway and 3 is like the crown jewel. Like, look at it. It's beautiful. You know what I'm talking about, that opening sweeping shot of the Pontiac Silverdome. So, no synergy here for me. If you've got something, let us know. Number four, WrestleMania for the tournament. 1988, the number one film in America that weekend is the Matthew Broderick joint, Biloxi Blues, which I fucking talked about on an episode of WCW Must Die with Jenny when they did a show in Biloxi. No, they did a show in Mississippi, and she told a story about going to a casino in Biloxi and getting kicked out of the casino. I've not seen Biloxi Blues. I know it's a movie about uh, like the 1950s military doctors, I think, like getting up to all kinds of shenanigans. Well, you know, the late 80s sort of tried to view history through a unique lens. Everybody was, uh, you know, having a time in the 80s, uh, consumerism and what have you. I don't know that I can necessarily relate Biloxi Blues to WrestleMania 4, and that's why this isn't an entire episode of Bright Man on its own. Can you imagine the shit that I would have to come up with? Although, I do like the idea that WrestleMania 4 was hosted by a piece of shit, uh, quote-unquote, grab him by the pussy, and if the Biloxi Blues is about 1950s military guys hooking up with nurses, well, there's probably some chauvinistic shit going on there, so we can relate that. Let's move on. Oh, this is good. All right. WrestleMania five. The Mega Powers Explode. Now, you could choose to view that as like two larger-than-life superhero-type characters fighting one another, kind of like a Marvel Civil War, if you will. As a matter of fact, we talked about that in our last episode when they were both on the Avengers as Iron Man and Captain America. See the last episode. But the number one film in America was Rain Man. Now, Rain Man, I do stand by as a, as a good film. I am not here to say that... You know, there's a big thing in movies and art um, about inclusion. Uh... Which I'm, I'm behind that. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, where I'm going with this is, I could see, you know, me saying something nice about Rayman. Someone's like, well, you know, Dustin Hoffman's not autistic, so why is he playing an autistic guy? Look, I don't, I don't know, guys. I don't have answers for shit. I mean, he's acting. He's an actor. I, I don't know. Okay, and I don't know how accurate the portrayal is. The whole, all I'm trying to get at is that Rayman is on this list anyway. Probably the most adult. I mean, it's an R-rated film, but it's an adult. It's a, it's a, it's a film about adult themes and adult concepts. Now, WrestleMania Five takes place in a very Saturday morning-esque environment, but the storyline between the Mega Powers exploding—well, it may be presented as cut and dry, but we know better. 
Is Savage right? Is Hogan right? You really have to think about it. You can't just be spoon-fed what they're giving you. I mean, you certainly can choose to be, as I would have as a fucking uh, six-year-old. But at the same time, Rain Man is complex. There are, you know, Tom Cruise is being a prick. You know, he kidnaps his brother who can't legally, you know, sign for himself. He can't make decisions legally for himself. Right, right or wrong, it's 80s culture. I just, it is what it is. I'm not promoting that, please. All right, just, why do I always feel like I have to protect myself from people being angry? I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I'm just here to talk about art, okay? Anywho, but I do think Rain Man is more complex, and, and that storyline's more complex on top, so let's go with that. 1989 is a year of complexities, and that's what we're going to do to put our stamp on it. Oh my fucking God, I remember this. 1990, WrestleMania 6. This must have been Easter. Somebody look up if Easter was after WrestleMania 6, which was April 1st, uh, uh, April Fool's Day, famously. The number one movie in America. Yep, because I would have been on spring break. Yep, it's all coming back. I'm having the feels, folks. <clears throat> Excuse me. WrestleMania 6 weekend. Number one movie in America. Teenage Mutant fucking Ninja Turtles. What a fit. You know, that Ninja Turtles movie, did you guys know that's an independent film? Not like Goodwill Hunting or some shit. I mean, it's independent in the sense that it wasn't financed by one of the major film studios. But that movie really held on to as much of its source material as it could. If anyone's ever read like the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic run by Eastman and Laird, I wouldn't be like, oh, it's dark. But, it, you know, they're killing people. The Turtles are using their weapons and they're killing the members of the Foot Clan. They kill the Shredder in the first issue. Spoiler alert, because Eastman and Laird, the guys who who wrote it and drew it, didn't expect the didn't expect to do any more, you know? So in the first issue, they kind of introduced the concept and solved the problem, all right? The Turtles didn't have color-coordinated bandanas that was all invented by the cartoon, and that's fine. I love the cartoon, too, but, man, that first Turtles movie really held on to the grime and the darkness uh, as much as it could. Um, you know, you got kids smoking. The, the little kids who are Foot Clan potential trainee members are smoking cigars and playing pool, you know, the guy's like, uh, you want some cigarettes? Regular or menthol? Uh, you got people bleeding. You've got uh, Raphael in a coma. Raph's my favorite. I love that fucking movie. I, I'm, I may watch it tonight. Um, but it's it's definitely a, you know, it's a, it's a superhero movie, technically. And we've got WrestleMania six, like the ultimate a PG, and I mean that as a good thing in this era, like Hogan and Warrior, the ultimate challenge. I mean, come on. You want to talk about the culture being in line with one another. Uh, between the Police Academy movies and the first two Manias, to me, this is the first concrete example of WrestleMania matching popular culture. And I fucking love it. Now, interestingly enough, we have a fucking repeat. Because WrestleMania 7, number one movie in America... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, starring Big Sexy himself. Uh, no Corey Feldman in this one. That's a big problem for me. I'm digging me some Corey Feldman Donatello. But look at the difference between 1 and 2. Number 1, it's been less than a year. So again, rushed, which I would agree. But Turtles 2 is so much brighter and so much happier and so much kiddier. 
they do that whole big fight in the toy store at the beginning to set the scene that, hey, guys, the turtles can beat up bad guys without using their weapons, right? Right? Because I remember the controversy between one and two, between parents' groups saying, oh, I don't want to, the turtles are using weapons, and my kids, now they're using weapons. My fucking son pulled a sigh on me and killed me. Okay, that, if that actually happened, that isn't funny. I made that up. But, but you see what I'm saying here? Now, how does that correlate with seven? Let's see what we can find here. Well... I got it. I love it. Turtles 2 going happier. Maybe a reflection of the times to protect kids from the reality of the situation. If TMNT 2 is coming out during um, WrestleMania 7, which was after the Desert Storm conflict had, I guess, quote-unquote, ended, you know, if they're shooting Turtles 2 and there's a war going on or the concepts are out there, like, well, no, that's too... I don't know what they're trying to do here. Maybe there isn't any synergy. I mean, Hulk Hogan's still on top. That's a cartoon. Um, We're starting to get a little more mature. The Undertaker's around. Well, mature. I guess that's a fucking... You know, I, I guess we'll go like this. If you consider... Oh, yeah. This is the angle we'll take. Let's say that you took your kids to see Turtles after WrestleMania 6, like my mom did. God love you, Mom. Easter week, spring break, she was a teacher. I know my aunt. I remember seeing Turtles and right after the Ultimate Challenge. What a great memory. If Turtles 2 is a course correction, making the Turtles more kid-friendly, WWF is doing the same thing. They're course correcting back to Hulk Hogan from The Warrior. So there's some synergy there, and that's what we're going to go with. Oh my God. WrestleMania 8, my first Mania live in attendance. And the number one movie in America, Dutch filmmaker Paul Verhoeven's sexual epic, Basic Instinct. Well, my first thought is uh, America, or pop culture, is obsessed with sex. Basic Instinct, famously. Yeah, I mean, it's not all about sex, but come on. I mean, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Made Sharon Stone a household name. She's a beautiful woman. That's great. Um... Lots of nudity, which I'm not here to like put up on a pedestal, but that's what it's famous for, the famous interrogation scene. Well, WrestleMania 8 was obsessed with some ladies as well, particularly Miss Elizabeth. I mean, really think about this. Sex must be permeating the popular culture. What has... I mean, it's the start of the 90s. Things are getting a little more 90s. It's it. That's interesting. Now, obviously, I'm not saying the WWF went in the direction of Flair and Savage uh, feuding over, quote-unquote, Elizabeth having an illicit relationship because of Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. Obviously, there's, there's these plans aren't set in place as a collaboration. But it is interesting to me that maybe they thought that's the direction that people are buying into now. We need something a little bit more adult. The Elizabeth Savage Flair stuff is about as Saturday morning cartoonish as you can get get when it comes to a storyline like that, but I find that very interesting. Um, you know, I, I obviously didn't see Basic Instinct when it first came out. I've seen it before and since, but I love director Paul Verhoeven, Starship Troopers, Total Recall, Robocop, Showgirls, which I stand by as a, as a great movie, fun experience, great to watch. It's the best looking, worst film you've ever seen. It's shot so well, it still looks like it was made yesterday, even though the fashions are outdated. I love Paul Verhoeven, Hollow Man as well. No, I don't like Hollow Man as much, but that's fine. Glad he made the list. WrestleMania 9. Oh, this is fucking fitting. So, I hate WrestleMania 9. Like, I, I you know, I, I think it's sort of... 
deserves the credit that it doesn't get. Like, I'm not a fan of it. And the number one movie in America was Burt Reynolds in Cop and a Half. I could see this going two ways. Cop and a Half being a movie that you grew up watching and you liked, and that's fine. But to me, you got Burt Reynolds starring in a 90s kid comedy, which is like the... (laughs) Nothing against Big Burt. He'll make an appearance next year at WrestleMania 10, but come on. This is like if Kindergarten Cop is the number one example of this genre. And that's got Arnold Schwarzenegger, number one fucking box office draw, like massive celebrity. Uh, if that's WrestleMania 3, just as an example, WrestleMania 9, having Burt Reynolds as that is perfect in my opinion. So America definitely wants kid-friendly films at this point, and WrestleMania, WWF, still a very kid-friendly product. But Cop and a Half is like the budget version or the great value version of that type of shit. And WrestleMania 9 is the great value version of a WrestleMania, in my opinion. I love it. It's lining up perfectly there, in my opinion. Talk about brand synergy, if you will. Continuing on now, Naked Gun, 33 and a third, takes the spot with WrestleMania 10. Well, fitting, because 1994 would see Leslie Nielsen uh, deliver, along with Domino's The Undertaker. Uh, No need to go further there. 1995 lovely. It's WrestleMania 11. It's Lawrence Taylor. It's every B-list or D-list celebrity, including Nick Tatero. And it's Tommy Boy. You know, uh, my memories here uh, indicate renting Tommy Boy quite a bit as opposed to renting wrestling pay-per-views. So I'm digging the synergy there. Number 12, fascinating to me. Uh, WrestleMania 12, that is. Here we go. So WrestleMania 12, Gold Dust, Rowdy Piper, Hollywood Backlot Brawl. What does Hollywood have to offer? Well, Gold Dust is a unique interpretation of the gay panic, as is and and just to pivot back there for a second, I'm using the gay panic in the in the way that it would have been used in the time, which was still wrong, okay? Obviously. Uh with the birdcage though. So it looks like pop culture is ready to realize that everybody doesn't look and act just like me, and I'm loving that. Uh, now you can, we can debate endlessly the portrayal of the Gold Dust character, or whether or not it was a good thing or a bad thing. But that's the brand synergy that I'm getting from WrestleMania 12 and the Birdcage, top of the box office that weekend. A lot of Gold Dust fans. I'm loving it. Hey, I like Gold Dust. You like Gold Dust. That's good stuff. WrestleMania 13, and I know I saw it the weekend of 13, and it wasn't a steel cage match featuring Randy Savage and Ravishing Rick Rude, but it is the movie Liar, Liar. God, I'm trying to think of a good liar, liar joke. Yeah, it's because you got big jugs. <gasps> I mean, your boobs are huge. <gasps> I want to squeeze them. <gasps> Mama. It makes sense, though, because if WrestleMania is 13, why not go see a movie with a lot of Jim Carrey sex jokes, okay? Uh, Your teen mind wants to joke about boobs, and so does Jim Carrey. And what's with that kid's fucking bowl cut? His hair is bigger than him. (laughs) I could be no... (laughs) Baseball stuff! Come on, you could be Jose Canseco. I could be Nomo. God, I love Liar Liar. I haven't seen it in years. WrestleMania 14. Attitude. Austin Tyson Michaels. We are ready to evolve 
in our storytelling presentation in the WWF? Well, Hollywood is ready to evolve. You will believe a stone-cold superstar can top the Federation? You will believe a multi-million dollar summer Hollywood-style blockbuster can win the Oscar for Best Picture? Because even though it came out in December of 1997, Titanic is still atop the box office in March of 1998. Longevity for Titanic and Jim Cameron. Longevity for the Attitude Era. Eh, There's a little bit of synergy there, but I, I do find this interesting because the box office prowess of Titanic is unique because it brought in everybody. I saw Titanic in the theater. I was going to see it no matter what. I'm probably not a good sample size, even though I was like a 14, 13-year-old boy. I followed Titanic from its inception when folks said, it'll be the biggest disaster in Hollywood history. No, they weren't talking about HBO's ill-fated Batgirl. They were talking about Titanic. Well, guess what? Jim Cameron proved him wrong. And will he do it again with Avatar 2? I don't know. I don't care. I didn't like Avatar. But Titanic is on top, and I don't know about necessary synergy or what this is telling me about culture or society, but you know what? Wrestle. Uh, oh, here's, here's what I can equate it to. WrestleMania 14 started the Attitude Era, right? Well, during the Attitude Era, people outside my normal friend group from school, even some of the girls... Uh, which is, mind you, for the Attitude Era, a small town, like a lot of girls weren't wrestling fans, at least not the girls I was friends with. Well, guess what? They're coming out, they're hanging out for pay-per-views, they're having a decent enough time. Titanic speaks to everyone. The Attitude Era speaks to everyone, believe it or not, and that's the button we're going to put on it. 1999 is up next, often called like the last great year in cinema. I don't know that I necessarily believe that, but there is a fantastic book about it if you are interested. So it looks like WrestleMania 15 pairs up with Forces of Nature. God, what the... That is a Ben Affleck, Sandra Bullock romantic movie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And while I love me some Ben Affleck, he is my Batman forever. Oh, look, I said Batman and forever. That's fun. But I don't know here. Um, Interesting. Maybe it's a date type of movie, and since WrestleMania is 15, they're probably going out on dates. But it's also, WrestleMania 15 is sort of a storyline soap opera first, uh, definitely a wrestling presentation second. And so perhaps that's being reflected in the box office by a romantic comedy or a movie that's more melodramatic as opposed to action-oriented taking center stage. It's interesting because Titanic, also a romance, but there's definitely a a hodgepodge and a hybrid of genres there. So I don't have a lot of synergy for Forces of Nature, but since WrestleMania 15 isn't the greatest, I'm going to allow it. WrestleMania 16, ooh, Aaron Brockovich, the Julia Roberts Oscar-nominated romp. Is that a Steven Soderbergh flick? I have not seen Aaron Brockovich in a long time, but it's definitely a legal drama about an a character that sort of comes into their own, realizing that the you know when they fight the good fight, they discover their actual purpose in life or their identity as an individual, and I appreciate that. But I'm not really feeling much synergy here. The year 2000, when it comes to wrestling, is often considered a high point, so I do find it interesting that the film that's number one that weekend was a high art film, meaning that it's nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. Um, so we're going to go with that angle. 
WrestleMania 17, the pinnacle of the Attitude Era, fitting and interesting that the number one film in America is the Robert Rodriguez romp. And that's some alliteration for you, Spy Kids. Now, I have not seen any of the Spy Kids films, but I am very familiar with Robert Rodriguez as a filmmaker. And what's interesting here is Robert Rodriguez is known for sort of like a, a very hard R-rated style, but it's my understanding he wanted to make some movies his kids could see. And, of course, Antonio Banderas is part of Spy Kids as well. But I also know that the Spy Kids franchise is sort of known for being a, I don't want to call it a revolutionary take on film taking, but it certainly maintains Robert Rodriguez's sort of budget filmmaking style while also being a nice big box sort of family film that everyone can enjoy. I guess you could compare that to the pinnacle of the Attitude Era being WrestleMania 17 in a sense that it's WrestleMania's, well, it is WrestleMania's return to form being in a dome. Um, and it does appeal to perhaps every member of the wrestling audience that has been gained since WrestleMania 14. But unfortunately, uh, you know, this might be one of those examples of non-brand synergy. But, you know, and this might be cheating, but I'm looking at WrestleMania 18. Uh, Hogan Rock, but that's Ice Age. So we've got a little trend here. Perhaps we're seeing a decline in the desire for Jerry Springer-type content. If you consider that 17 and 18 are sort of, perhaps if you were to be able to, to map out a, not a decline of the Attitude Era, but perhaps the beginning of a pivot to a new direction or a less Russo-esque action uh, direction, while still maintaining adult themes when necessary. You know, we're, we're sort of back to kids' movies and kids' fair being the number one draw uh, during the springtime. Perhaps that's an example of the cycle starting to repeat itself. You know, in this stretch from WrestleMania 8 to WrestleMania 18, we've seen a lot of PG-13, we've seen some R, and then we've seen a little bit of kids' fair here starting to ramp up. Maybe that's just the, the, the centrical, centrical, centrifugal nature of, you know, the WWF and uh, entertainment in general. You know, when when kids are dominating the box office, after a little bit of time, we still gear towards them as they age, and then we sort of hit the reset button and start playing to the next generation. Perhaps that's what we're doing here. Speaking of next generation, that was the name of a ridiculously uninteresting stable in the early days of NWA TNA and fitting that WrestleMania 19 shares dominance for that weekend with the Chris Rock film Head of State which features NWA TNA. You know, I saw Head of State a lot this year, the year that it came out cuz uh in my first college apartment we we had a hard rule that we would always be subscribed to HBO so we could watch The Sopranos. And Head of State was a big HBO movie, so I've seen it quite a bit. It's got a great gag where Chris Rock continuously yells, Security! And random people he doesn't want around get yanked off the screen. Oh, he's the, he's the President of the United States in this movie, by the way. It's also got the great gag of Chris Rock at different points in his uh, ascension to becoming the President of the United States, where he travels around town with that song, Just me and my girlfriend, me and my girlfriend. I think it's a Jay-Z romp, but it's like they play it 
in the beginning, he's just riding a bike, looking like a loser, and it's like, what would I be in my life of sin? Would me and my girlfriend? And then they play it again in the movie, like he says he's in a car, and then they play it again when he's in, like, the presidential limo. <laughs> I don't know, it's stupid, but it pops into my head. But how does that synergize with 19? Well, if WrestleMania 19 is, like, the peak before the fall of wrestling in general, it's fitting that the number one movie in America would feature professional wrestling. Because no matter how high wrestling climbs, it's never been truly a part of multimedia and never been truly accepted 100%. So it's like, okay, wrestling genre, you're at the height of your powers, and here's the number one movie in America, and we'll, we'll throw in just a little bit part where you are, uh, where professional wrestling is referenced, but we're not even going to go WWE. We're just going to use this NWA TNA. And if you're interested in this, in the archives of North South Connection Podcast Network, they cover, I know they covered the Chris Rock episode of NWA TNA, where it looks like Chris Rock absolutely doesn't want to be there. But since he's a genius, he knows his audience. Get in and get the hell out as quickly and as safely as possible. Now, folks, I have to admit, I'm feeling this concept fall apart as I continue to try to find something interesting to talk about. And since I'm a human and I have the ability to see, uh, you know, which I'm not trying to be ableist here. I'm just saying that, like, I'm looking at this list, which is now in my clear, complete view. And I don't know that I could complete this and make it an interesting listen. But I do see a couple of fun ones that I'm going to talk about briefly before ending this sampler of bright man because you know we're entering the period where in my fandom i start to become distracted with living a quote-unquote adult life as i sit here on the threshold of 40 uh uh, you know creating a podcast about this topic but wrestlemania 20 shares box office dominance with the passion of the christ and i want to think in my head that this is where the vince God slash Jesus rivalry started because I could see him, well, you know, heading back after uh, it, per- performing in Madison Square Garden for WrestleMania 20, where it all begins again, and pulling up his newspaper because you know he's not getting any news from online and being like, Damn it, Patterson! The Passion of the Christ was the number one movie in America this weekend, taking taking attention away from WrestleMania. Who does this, who does this Christ think he is, huh? He thinks he's a hotshot. He thinks he can rule over the dominion of entertainment. Well, Patterson, get this Christ on the phone. I got a few words for him. Vince, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think I can call Jesus. What? He's not taking my calls. Patterson, take a note. From now on, Jesus is number one on my shit list. And then the only other one that jumps out at me from this list, looking at it right now is WrestleMania 23, and here's why. Let me tell a little tale, and I'll try to keep it as concise as possible. So, my spouse is like the opposite of me. She hates movies. She hates entertainment. She loves reality shows and stuff like that. No, I'm not throwing shade at my partner here, but uh, I do know that we did see this film in the theaters together. We saw, you know, until I started to realize, you know, taking taking the lady friend to the movies is just a, a not worth it because she really just can't stand being uh, have been forced to sit in one area for a certain amount of time. And I, I got to respect that as a person who, who hates it as well. But something happens to me. 
you know, I have such a hard time focusing on things a lot of times in life, but once those lights come down and the presentation starts, I'm glued to nothing but whatever's on that screen. Maybe that's why I find it so magical and I'm not trying to wax poetic and, you know, have a breakdown as I feel the emotions coming in as I'm revealing all these sad truths about myself to a public that hasn't asked for it. But I remember this very vividly and I love the fact that it's the number one film the weekend of WrestleMania 23. It's Blades of Glory which is a, not really a, a memorable film. It's like Napoleon Dynamite and Will Ferrell Ice Skate with uh, Pam from The Office as well, and I think Will Arnett's in it, but that's, that's not the point. Here's what stands out to me clear as day. When we saw Blades of Glory, there was a trailer for WrestleMania 23 that played in the theater before the movie started. Why do I remember this? Well, number one, I think I've made it clear that I love movies and think of it as a, as, a, as a visceral experience that stands out in my memory for various reasons. I'm a huge wrestling fan, clearly, and seeing a trailer for WrestleMania while I'm at the movie theater? Wow. You want to talk about brand synergy. I was like, wow, I never thought I would see a trailer for WrestleMania in front of a movie theater. Now, this trailer played in the beginning of the movie presentation when trailers play but it was not a part of the like random commercials that play in a movie theater it was part of the the screen is dark the screen has sort of reshaped itself and it was the first thing we saw before like trailers for actual movies started so clearly this was a paid advertisement that had clear intent to be a part of this theatrical exhibition why does this tie in so well to WrestleMania 23 not only was it a fun personal experience for me, but I believe, and this record may have been eclipsed, uh, WrestleMania 23, almost also famously the uh, hair versus hair battle of the billionaires, which I'm not going to make any political jokes, but hear me out. If WrestleMania 23 was the ridiculously highest grossing WrestleMania of all time, well, maybe this is one of the reasons why. The Battle of the Billionaires, of course, crossed genres and entertainment platforms. But here I am. Let's pretend I'm not a huge wrestling fan. And I'm a regular Joe who just is at the movies with his partner or lady friend or gentleman friend or whoever your friend is. And I'm being exposed to a trailer for WrestleMania 23. What is this? Uh, I've not heard of WrestleMania before. And here I am just trying to act like an average person. But now I'm being exposed to it. What's this? I might see Donald Trump get his head shaved. Uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's going to be there. Well, I've heard of him. Maybe I'll check this out. Maybe I've now penetrated to a new audience that wasn't available before. And I love it. And because I think it's such a fun example of how pop culture can come and combine, and I don't find a way to make WrestleMania 32 sync up with a conversation about Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice because I could sit here and off the top of my head give you a three-hour podcast on why I love Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice as long as we're talking about the ultimate edition but that's not what you came for and uh, I don't know how to tie it into WrestleMania 32 because I can't even think of the main event of WrestleMania 32 off the top of my head luckily episodes of Bright Man are well thought out and I do all my research and take all my notes before I record. 
But here we go as an example of what could be a bright idea that tops that comes out of the top of my head. And it's also an idea of how I'm not just trying to look at wrestling like a wrestling product. I'm not just trying to sit here and review matches on Brightman. Uh, I like to talk about lost concepts like that 1990 WrestleMania tournament, wrestle, uh, Wrestling Intercontinental Championship tournament, or perhaps look at wrestling, mix it with genres from a completely different perspective. It's sort of the spiritual successor of the multiverse of fabulousness, in my opinion, and it's available to you exclusively on the Aqua Cave. And I apologize for not being able to deliver the full list, but you don't want to hear me struggle. You don't want to hear me try to figure things out. Except I will say that the number one film at the box office uh, this year, the weekend of the most stupendous WrestleMania of all time, was Morbius. So it is indeed Morbin time. Has anybody watched Morbius? I never. I, I've just seen all the memes. I have seen the vampire dance sequence. And if you're not familiar with it, just do yourself a favor and Google Morbius dance. And that's where we're going to put a pin on the multiverse of fabulousness. The portal to Earth Aqua is collapsing around me. And while I love spending time in the Aqua Cave, I'm going to jump back to the normal reality here on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. But folks, you like this show, you like the samplers, like I said earlier, like and subscribe to the North-South Connection Podcast Network. Subscribe to the Aqua Cave if it tickles your fancy. But come back every day and check out the feed on the North South Connection Podcast Network to scratch the itch of your fandom. The The shows here cross all generations of wrestling and it's evergreen content, but if you're into the new stuff or the modern stuff, shout out to my buddy Ryan Gray. Clotheslines and Headlines has returned, tackling all the modern issues in professional wrestling. And you know what? I'm optimistic. It's a good time to be a wrestling fan. I've watched more Raw and SmackDown since Vince McMahon retired than I have in years. And I also watched every single minute and second of SummerSlam and enjoyed it myself. So folks, perhaps a rebirth of professional wrestling as we know it here on our planet in the multiverse. And stay tuned for the Multiverse of Fabulousness as it returns next month when we open a new portal and explore what sort of variants for professional wrestling and pop culture we can find out there in the multiverse. Stay dry. Well, you know what? That doesn't really work. Stay dry. I was going to say stay dry, but swim in the aqua cave. So I will just leave you with this wise phrase that I leave uh, listeners of the aqua cave with. Don't forget that when you listen to a podcast on the North-South Connection Podcast Network, that's your way of saying to the rest of the world that a winner is you. And we'll see you next time.